The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and this is something that you probably did not know. It's one of those things. Did you know that Bulgarians nod to say no, and they shake their head to say yes? Isn't that interesting? There's a part of you that would think that all people nod to say yes and shake their head to say no. There's even a theory that maybe the reason for that would be that babies turn their head away when they don't want food. I remember my dolly going, I don't want it, turning her head. And so then maybe you nod to say yes because it's the natural opposite. But no, no, because Bulgarians, they nod for no and they shake their head for yes. And the reason I know it is because I have spoken to a considerable number of Bulgarians about this. Now, we have to allow a certain flexibility in what qualifies as considerable because I have spoken to two. But that's considerable. Tanya Tachkova and Zlatko Angelov, thank you very much for your counsel. And I, I've read this around. It's true. Now, the reason that I'm bringing that up is because it gets you thinking. Part of you almost assumes that any human being would understand you nodding your head to mean yes. But no, it isn't true. The reason you might think about that at all is because what is the universal language? Is gesture the universal language? And the answer is no. And it gets you thinking, what is the way that we could all talk to each other? You think about the Tower of Babel. And the idea being that at some point, all of humanity were communicating in one language, and then God condemned us by scattering us and creating all these different languages so we couldn't understand each other. And there's something to it in that. I think anybody who's listening to this knows that I love the diversity of the world's languages. It's part of how I make my living. It's part of what gets me up in the morning. But the truth is, this is something that I think most of us can wrap our heads around. If, for some reason, there really was only one language spoken worldwide, I don't think that many people would wish that there were 7,000 different languages and that people couldn't understand each other. It isn't something that you would want if you had never heard of it. Or, let's try this. The 7,000 languages in the world are wonderful in their diversity, but it's not so bad to imagine that maybe everybody could communicate also in some one language while having their own separate languages. And some people sometimes ask, I certainly get asked, are we on our way to there being one single language of the world? And which one would that be? And is it a good thing? Well, let's look into that because there have been various attempts to create a universal language. Languages have competed to be the universal language, and frankly, the competition is pretty much won at this point. But let's explore, let's explore this. A lot of you are probably thinking of, I would certainly be thinking of right now, wonderful Esperanto. Esperanto has been the world's most successful attempt at creating a universal language. Ludwig Zamenhof, 1887. He had an idea that it would help to foster world peace. Well, look what happened. But he did create Esperanto. And Esperanto has supposedly 16 rules. And the idea is that it's easier to learn than regular languages that get all gunked up with the sort of thing that makes us not learn other languages. For example, if you're listening to me right now, Chances are that you've had some sort of experience with, you know, French, Spanish, Italian, German. 
And if you have, but you haven't experienced Esperanto, here, listen to some of it, and I'm sure that you can guess what this person, for example, is saying. Okay, what do you guess he just said? If you guessed my name is, you are correct. He goes on. Let's see, is that so hard? He's talking about being a student at that university. Now listen to him here. Okay, what do you think patro and patrino might mean? Patro, well, that's a tough one. Yeah, it means father. And then patrino is mother. There you go. Now it gets a little more complicated, but pretend you're listening to somebody speaking something we could call Fritalianish. So, nask, that's born, kresk is grow up, Germanujo, Germany. So he was born and he grew up in Germany. Notice how if if you're even vaguely familiar with the standard average European languages that we often learn, you can make your way through Esperanto. And I remember as a teenager having the problems I described too often, you know, I'm dateless, etc. I remember getting a book of Esperanto that book must have been used by somebody who smoked themselves into a pile of ash. It smelled so good. It smelled like Cuban cigars. It wasn't paper. I think it was made of tobacco. But I actually used this book and taught myself a little Esperanto. But, you know, universal language, I'm not quite sure. So, for example, if you've got this language with roots like studento and patro, well, yes, that's easy for me and easy for you. But... If you're from Thailand, that's not so easy. If you grew up speaking Zulu, then there's nothing easy about these almost all European and specifically mostly Western European derived words. And, you know, everything's all about suffixes. Parolas, that is speak, as in the present. Parolis is spoke, as in the past. Parolos is speaking in the future. That's dandy for those of us who are familiar with European languages. But if you are, for example, Chinese, you don't want those damn suffixes. That's not something that all languages have, and they're very hard to learn if you're not used to it. And you know, it's interesting about Esperanto in that a lot of it is very tinker toy user friendly, but some of it isn't really. I remember feeling kind of stupid back when I was about 15. I was working through what's supposed to be one rule. Rule six is the verbs. And some of the rule, you know, they're kind of cheating on what a rule is, is the sort of thing I just told you with all those endings. But then within rule six, you have things like estas vidanta, is seeing, okay, then estis vidanta, was seeing, and then me estas vidonta. And so that's, I am about to see, I'm seeing in the future. You know, this kind of future participle, and then it kind of goes on, estas vidita, I am seen, estos vidota, I will be about to be seen. That, that's hard. That's the sort of thing that somebody makes up, like wonderful Zamenhof, who's familiar with the way languages like Latin and Greek work, but it was kind of tough for me coming from New Jersey. And I can imagine what that would be like if somebody was Japanese or if somebody was speaking an Australian Aboriginal language natively or something like that. God bless Esperanto. I had fun with it, 
when I was a kid. I took a little bit more of it when I was a grad student. Um, a close linguistics colleague and I, whenever we get uh, whenever we get together, we like to stump a walk through the streets of wherever we are at a conference and speak bad Esperanto with each other. I love Esperanto, but you know, frankly, folks, and you know, I don't mean to hurt your feelings, Esperantist. I hope you understand that I I love what you do and what you are. But Esperanto is not a universal language. It's Italian for dummies. It's fun, but it's not cosmopolitan. I mean, really, imagine. Turkish is one of a passel of kittens. You know, if you're talking about Turkish, if you're talking about Uyghur, if you're talking about Uzbek, if you're talking about Kazakh, all of those languages are called the Turkic languages, and they're very closely related to each other. Now, imagine if some very well-intentioned Turk put together a language that basically boiled down those Turkish languages into a kind of easy Turkish and then presented this kind of Turkoronto as a universal language. Would you want to learn that language? You know, Turkish is nice, but it wouldn't feel exactly universal to me. That's Esperanto. It's hard to find a language that's in between everybody's language in the world because languages are so very, very different. Yeah, we're going to go back to 1942. This is a movie that nobody sees, justifiably, called Seven Days Leave. It technically stars Lucille Ball, but really it's just a a big bunch of daffy people. And for some reason, Victor Mature is in it. For those of you who don't know who Victor Mature is, he was precisely the Chris Knopf of the 1940s. He looked like Chris Knopf. He acted like Chris Knopf. He was, I think Chris Knopf is him, actually. They looked exactly alike. And he gets to sing a little solo in this song called I Speak Your Language. You speak my language when you dance like that. You speak my language, how's about a chat? You speak my language, what do you say we spoon? Who needs a language underneath the moon? You are a Latin, I'm from Alabama. You don't know my adjectives and I don't know your grammar. But when it comes to making with the love, sure, you speak my language and and we're hand in glove. So, me amas Esperanto, but I don't think that from the perspective of most people in the world it would seem all that universal, although quite a few people do speak it. But if we were going to think theoretically, you know, what is the universal language of the world going to be if not Esperanto, which honestly has only ever gotten so far in all of its splendor? You know, really, we need to think about Mandarin Chinese because, for one thing, Depending on how you count it, one in seven human beings speak Mandarin Chinese. How they do it without having strokes, I don't know, but they do do it. As opposed to, depending on how you count it, about one in 20 for English. A lot of people already speak Mandarin Chinese, and most of us know that China is doing pretty darn well in terms of becoming the economic power of, some people would say, the whole world. And so why not Mandarin as the universal language. I think many of us who are educated Westerners are perhaps even delighted by the idea that the universal language becomes not this thing that I'm speaking. It would seem that the English language and you know the English country, etc., have had quite the day in the sun geopolitically for a great many centuries, and maybe it's time to cede that place to somebody else. And the idea of it being something as different from us as Mandarin Chinese, well, Yeah, that would be really neat if Mandarin were the world's universal language. But, you know, no, I I can't even pretend. And you know why? It's just it's too hard. It's just 
too goddamned hard. And yes, these things can be arbitrary. Mandarin isn't that hard if you're Cantonese, but let's face it, most of us aren't Cantonese. And if you're coming at the Chinese languages in general, they're languages. They're not dialects of one another. They are separate languages written with the same system, and even that's a stretch. But if you are coming from outside of those languages, golly, gosh, gee, Chinese is a massive challenge. So let's just start with the, the writing system. Goodness, it's beautiful. Truly beautiful. But oh, it is one difficult historical accident of a system. You have to know at least 2,000 of those beautiful symbols to be able to read on a moronic level, quite frankly. And no, Chinesey, some of you probably have that beautiful book where they take some of them and they draw pictures on them. And so they make it look like the symbols can be made to look like what they actually are. That's cute for a very few of them. But really, most of them, you just have to know they are as random as luck. And so, all right, I'm doing it in my head right now. This is silly, but you know how they say that for some reason, if you're a man, you're better at rotating a polyhedron in your mind than if you're a woman? Well, I'm doing it now, except I'm doing it with the Chinese writing for shrimp. Supposedly, this thing looks like a shrimp. Go look it up. I can't communicate it to you, but it does not look like a shrimp. You know what it looks like? It looks like an elderly person smilingly watching a little boy urinate. That's what it looks like. And to be perfectly honest, that does not remind me of shrimp at all. Chinesey. It's like Chine queasy. I don't think that works. And then the sounds. My goodness, the sounds. For example, the word for shrimp. And I'm not going to be playing any more recordings. From now on, I'm going to own up to my you know growing but crappy Chinese. You're going to have to listen to me do it. I apologize to native Mandarin speakers. But for shrimp, xia. There you go. You see, I'm trying to do tone Xia, but here's the problem. What's that first sound I'm making? Is it s or is it sh? It's neither. It's not s. It's not sh. It's sh. You have to master a kind of an s-y sound in between what we think of as s. S. What we think of as sh, although they don't pronounce it exactly the way we do, more like sh. And then in between the s and the sh is a s. And all of those are different. You have s, s, and sh. You have to master that. And if you don't do it, you sound like a jackass. Or the tones, my goodness. So, for example, xia, that's shrimp. Xia, now that's different. That's summer. Or it means down, which is nice because that happens good. And so xia is like down. But still, xia, you're talking about shrimp. Xia, you're talking about when you have trouble figuring out what you're going to do with your kids because school is out. Actually, xia lets you off easy because in terms of what gets thrown at you during the first year or two, I think those two tones are about it. But take, for example, something like um, xie, not xia, but xie. Now, xie all alone doesn't mean anything. You have to do the little tone. So xie is lots of. Then xie where it's kind of like you're the Pillsbury Doughboy and somebody pokes you in the stomach. So, shit, that's right, as in writing something down. Then, shit, that's shoe. Then, shit, that's like if you've ever been at a Chinese restaurant and you're speaking your mock Chinese and you say, xie, xie, <laughs> that's xie, xie, that's thanks. So, xie, 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 all of those are different words. And of course, those are the only ones. There are languages that are more user-friendly where you can get by with more even in the beginning than in a language like Chinese. So for example, not too long ago, I was taking my Chinese lessons 
you know, the teacher asked me, what did you do on the weekend? And, you know, who cares what I did on the weekend? Those boring language textbook questions. So I tried to say something that was relatively real and relatively interesting. And it seemed to kind of pertain to being Chinese, which is that I had gone to one of the Chinese restaurants in my neighborhood and had a Peking duck, Beijing duck, chopped up for me. And I had had a nice dinner. So I was thinking that I was saying, I went to a Chinese restaurant and I bought a duck. And all of a sudden, the teacher was practically under the table, not looking at me, laughing, you know, for a good long time. If it was a sitcom, they would have had to cut the laugh in half. And I said, what? What did I say? What I had said was that I had walked into the Chinese restaurant and purchased myself some male company for the evening. I really had actually said that I walked in there and picked up a gigolo. It was because of these subtle little things that you would never know. In my experience, most languages are a little more forgiving than that. You don't make mistakes quite that stark. Although, actually, come to think of it, the first time I had to actually use French at a restaurant, I did think I was asking for a straw, and apparently it sounded like I was seeking some kind of fellatio. So there you go. That is a counterexample. But that doesn't happen as much with French as with Chinese. And so, you know, you wind up sounding like Tony in Most Happy Fella. A couple of you have written me asking why I haven't played anything from the 1956 almost through sung musical Most Happy Fella written by Frank Lesser, who did Guys and Dolls, and you'd never know it from listening to this very accessible American musical comedy slash opera. It's one of my favorite things in the world. The original recording took up three LPs, and they actually gave it to it because the music is so perfect. This is Tony, who is an immigrant from Italy, sounds like southern Italy, from the way they have him talking. And he's meeting American Rosabella. And Tony's English isn't great. And Tony nowadays always reminds me, frankly, of me picking up a little man in a restaurant. Here we go. Happy to make your acquaintance. Thank you so much. I feel Thank fine. Thank you so much. I'm a feel fine. Happy to make when it say the pleasure, the pleasure is mine. The pleasures are mine. How do you do? Please to know How you. do you do? Please to know I you. Know my English is poor. My English is a goddamn poor. Happy, Happy to, to make you a when it Now won't you please say likewise? Likewise. No, likewise. Uh, likewise. No, likewise. Oh, likewise. I'm sure. So, what about English? Because English really is pretty close to being the universal language of the world in terms of the internet, in terms if you're flying a plane, in terms of the hegemony of pop music. You cannot escape American pop music anywhere you go. I have been on the island of New Guinea and watched a teenage boy do a perfect rendition of Usher. And this was somewhere where, frankly, if you had to relieve yourself, you had to do it in a bucket. And yet he could do that. English is a very, very important language 
in this world. The number of people who speak it as a second language is absolutely vast, difficult to count, but absolutely vast. And, you know, in terms of being a universal language, English has acquired that status at a time when media and communications have grown in a certain way. So in a way, English got there first. Even if Mandarin were more user-friendly, it would be hard to displace this language that got there first. It's like, you know, the aspects of English spelling that don't make any sense. You know, there's not supposed to be an L in there. The word is soldier. It was pronounced soldier, and then somebody stuck in the L, and so now we say soldier, that sort of thing, but we're not going to get used to it. Or, you know, a phrase like stay tuned, stay tuned for, it doesn't make sense anymore. You don't have to tune your TV, remember when you did? And so English really just kind of got there and maybe we can just kind of go with it. I mean, it's a language that's ugly as a but. I can think of a couple that rival English and ugliness, but I'm not going to say what they are. But if you're an English speaker, almost any language you learn, but this one is immediately prettier. You can just tell, talk about universals. I'll bet that we could come up with some universals and cat, banana, this, those. That's just not pretty. But we're stuck with this ugly thing. And maybe... It's just the way it has to be. I mean, quite frankly, if the Chinese end up running the world, and I would not be surprised if they do, they're going to do it in English. And it's because this language is easier than theirs relatively. Now, of course, English is a nightmare if you're trying to learn to speak it with perfect idiomaticity. That's true of any language. But English is relatively easy. We don't have that many endings. And so, you know, ablo, ablas, abla, I speak, you speak, he, she, it speaks. None of that with us. All we have is that little walk, 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 and then walk, walk, walk. That's all we've got. It's strange. It's kind of impoverished. It's also ugly. Walk, 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 walk. Damn, that's our language. Nevertheless, that's kind of easy. No tone. We can just talk. There's no shish. You know, you might say something like, mm, but that's on the margins of the language. We do not have tone, so it doesn't challenge anybody with that. And you know, as the world goes, languages typically either throw lots of endings or prefixes at you. So a language is either like Russian or a language is going to throw all sorts of tones at you, like Chinese. If you're in Europe, for example, or a lot of particularly Western Asia, or frankly, a lot of the world, you're going to have to deal with the endings. If you are in a lot of Africa, if you are in East or Southeast Asia in particular, and actually, believe it or not, a part of Mexico, then you're going to have the tones. A language that doesn't throw either the Latin Russian crap at you or the Chinese Thai sort of thing at you. That's actually rather rare. And as that goes, English is unusually streamlined that way in terms of how languages go and what they throw at you. This is related to me and my battle with certain Creolists. I said way back when I was a 30-year-old pup, I'm going to pretend that when I was 30, I had a higher voice. And I said, you know, these languages, they don't have any endings or they don't have too many endings, mister. And and they don't have tone like Chinese. It's It ain't like Chinese. It ain't like Chinese. <laughs> I didn't sound anything like that. I said, and you know, can you think of any other language in the world, mister, that's like that? A language that doesn't have the Latin kind of endings and isn't like Chinese with the tones? Huh? 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 I would ask that because, frankly, even if you're a linguist, you might be hard-pressed to immediately think of a language like that. Mr. Gildersleeve, tell me. Well, I don't know. Uh, hard to say. Hard to say, little fella. 
And I'd say, I'll bet there isn't a language like that. Or there aren't too many other. Are there, mister? Huh? Huh? Uh, let's change the subject. And that's the way it would always go. Now, there are languages like that. Cambodian is one of them. But it's tough to think of it offhand. And it's because there aren't that many. English is one that courts that kind of status. And the Vikings are the ones who did it. Vikings came. They were mostly men. And they married English-speaking women. And these Vikings were normal human beings. They spoke shitty English. But there was no media. And so the progeny of these couples grew up listening to mommy speaking real English and daddy speaking this kind of broken English. And they split the difference. And the result was exactly what I'm speaking now. So what I'm speaking now was created by these primitives. And they actually did everybody a favor by making the language easier. You want to know who that was? Yeah, she does jump out at you. That is Libby Holman. She was rather mythological maybe two generations ago. She was white. Yes, she did sound black, but she was white. Had a very interesting life and among many things that were interesting about her is that at one point she married a man much younger than her, Cougar Libby, and he died in a plane crash. And you know what she did after that? She married his younger brother. Then he died. The thing is, some languages are easier than others because when adults come along and learn a language in large numbers, they have a way of making it easier. Biblical Hebrew and Israeli Hebrew are like that. Biblical Hebrew is the typical nightmare. There's a little prefix in Biblical Hebrew, the Vav prefix. And even today's smartest people haven't figured out exactly what that little damn thing did. It's something like, well, the verb is in the past tense, but you stick that little prefix and that makes it into the future. But then why did anybody put it into the past at all? It's just baffling. Israeli Hebrew has none of that. If any of you have ever learned or not learned Israeli Hebrew, I'm sure that at some point you thought to yourself, especially if you've had other other languages. Hmm, is that all there is? And that's because Israeli Hebrew was created by a great many adults coming together into a new nation, learning this language with the ossified language learning abilities of typical adults. And next thing you know, biblical Hebrew, typical nightmare, becomes the moderate nightmare of Israeli Hebrew, just as English is only a moderate nightmare. But you know, if I had to choose and Lord forbid anybody would put this choice in my hands. But if I had to choose the language that is the easiest in terms of ones that I've experienced, it would be Indonesian as it's spoken, usually. Standard Indonesian is about like English. But the way people actually speak Indonesian is one of the most delightfully user-friendly languages I have ever known. And so prefixes and suffixes Barely. Tone, forget that. Which means that I had a little you know, word list. I learned about 100 words. I spent about 10 minutes in Indonesia about 10 years ago. And I had my word list. I was getting around sounding like an idiot, but not as much like an idiot as I would have if it had been Russian or if it had been Chinese. So nobody thought that I was talking about picking up prostitutes or anything like that. I even had a whole 
what I thought was a rather fluently flirtatious relationship with a waitress who I had often because she worked in the hotel that I was staying in and she didn't speak English. And it's because colloquial Indonesian is really much easier than most languages. Barack Obama probably would know what I mean, but he wasn't allowed to make it too clear that he speaks some Indonesian because that would have made everybody think that he was, oh my goodness gracious, a Muslim. But he spoke it just like Martin Van Buren spoke Dutch. Colloquial Indonesian, really, that should be the world's universal language. But you know, for some reason, nobody listens to me. So I don't think that's going to happen. But what I really should be listened to about, because I don't think I'm alone in this council, is that if ideally there were going to be a universal language, a language that everybody could at least get by in, really, it shouldn't be a mouth language at all. It should be a sign language. That would really be much easier. The reason that sign language would be good is because for one thing, you might not know that there are hundreds of sign languages around the world. British sign language is even different from American sign language. But there's a certain amount of mutual intelligibility between all of them. And so that would mean that even if the universal sign language got different in different parts of the world, and that would be inevitable, still it would serve as a useful international tool. And you talk about the complexity. Sign language is very complicated. It's the same as an oral language in that if you're not born to it, then you almost certainly will never look as in sound in sign as you would have if you had been doing it since you were in the cradle. Very much real language, full language, nuanced language. But sign languages, at least the ones that we've seen so far, are not ridiculously, needlessly complicated in the way that, say, a Russian or a Chinese can be. And part of that is just because if you're speaking with your hands and your face, there's more of a limit on how much absolutely unnecessary knuckle-cracking complexity is going to creep in, as opposed to what happens with languages that you speak with your mouth. And so my idea, my dream is that everybody could walk around communicating in sign language instead of having to deal with, you know, say watered down Western European, which is Esperanto or, you know, Mandarin Chinese, which is a glorious thing that, you know, gets me through my days every day, but it's just too hard or English, which is geopolitically guilty, not to mention homely. And if it's all about me, and you know, I don't want it to be English because I want it to be something interesting, that, of course, makes no sense. But sign language would be much better. Now, I know that if I've mentioned Esperanto, then I have to mention a couple of the other attempts at universal languages. The one that many people say 100 years ago would have thought of maybe in place of Esperanto was called Volapuke. I not kidding. Volapuke. In English, you're supposed to say volapuk, which frankly isn't any better. But in many European languages, it does come out as a volapuke. And I, volapuke, that's what it was. Invented in 1879. Volapuke, <laughs> volapuke had a vogue. But the problem with volapuke, it was invented by this guy Schleier, was that he invented what he was thinking of as a universal language, but it was hard. He actually thought that a language was supposed to be difficult to learn. And so it's got all these suffixes and all these rules that are hard. And then also, these things are subjective. But listen to some volapuk. <laughs> 
Volapik Paspikol. Adelo bivalikos vilobdanon ladofiko utaniskels epenon skupetis vemosiikis pos registarot obik balit. You know, opinions will differ, but frankly, most of us can kind of tell Volapik was ugly. I mean, for example, our father who art in heaven. You know how that went in Volapik? It was O fat obus kelbinol in sulz. That you'd rather listen to a silverware drawer bouncing down the steps than that. It was just ugly. So it didn't catch on. And then this is my favorite. There was in 1827 a language invented called Soul Ray Soul. Can you guess what this person's idea was? That we could communicate through music instead of through words. This person had a whole dictionary and grammar worked out. And, you know, there were little patterns. And so, for example, I'm holding a recorder, by the way. No, not an ocarina. I'm going to bring that in later. You know, the ocarina is about as hard to play as Mandarin is to speak. And so I didn't feel like dealing with that today. So this is a recorder. This is me. You is. He is. So you see, there's a pattern. And you had all sorts of patterns that were supposed to make soul race soul easy to learn. So this is good. And you know what bad was? There are pairs like that throughout the language. And you're one of sexism? No, not necessarily. And so this is me. And then this is you. And then this is he. That is not she because this is she. The way you made something feminine was to make it longer. I don't know what the logic was. He he was French and he's very dead. But this means that this is brother. This is sister. That's soul racial. Yes, there were clubs. Yes, this caught on slightly among people who didn't have enough to do. And no, it never quite worked. But soul racial was definitely an imaginative attempt to create a universal language. And it's a pretty idea. And remember, you could sing it, you could whistle it, you could play it on instruments. Imagine people doing it in the dark. As a matter of fact, imagine what I just accidentally alluded to. That is a rather interesting notion of language. But in the meantime, we're just stuck with banana, white, banana, sausage, English. That's all we've got. Sarah Munt, you were right. We do need more spinners. And so I'm sure you hear the vamp in the background. This is this week's very best song ever written. It reminds me of being in the back seat of a car that was too big and used too much gas. The Chevrolet Caprice, and this would come on the radio. And I just knew that everything was right with the world. This is Games People Play. Can't get no rest. Don't know how I work all day. When will I learn? Memories get in the way. In any case, you can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe, or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. The show was edited, as always, by Mike Volo, and I am John Yanni McWhorter. <laughs> In 50 years, nobody will know what that means. Then again, they won't be listening to this. That's goodbye in Soul Race. Oh, okay, I'll stop. Thought I was late, and I found she wasn't there. 
guess I'll find love, peace of mind some other time. But I still have today. I gotta get away, gotta get away. I don't know where to go. It's hopeless, so I guess I'll leave it alone. Games people play, night or day, they're just not matching. 